Uh, you know, we've been in James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17 tonight, uh, talking about temptation. And you know, we're always, we're always forevermore making excuses for our sin, right? We're always finding reasons to blame somebody else or something else. not my fault, certainly not. I mean, I can't help what I do, right? We have that mentality. A few years back, some researchers in Sweden uh, said they discovered a gene that in certain men, this gene was found in a certain percentage of men in Sweden, maybe it's supposed to be worldwide, but they said that this gene caused those men to be more than monogamous, and it, and it also caused social problems in the relationship and, and, uh, between his uh, spouse and him. So in other words, it gave them the opportunity to blame sin on their genes. In fact, it was, it's been called the sin gene. And, uh, and so some could say, well, it's, yeah, I have to understand it's my genetics is the reason I sin and do the wrong things. It's because of my, my genetic structure. And, and so they blame it on that. And others say, no, it's the reason I sin and do wrong and fall prey to temptation is because of my parents. You see, my father was an alcoholic, and therefore I'm an alcoholic. I had a guy at my former job tell me, with, you know, looking at me straight face, said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. You know, it's a disease, right? They've proven that. And, and, and he blamed his, his alcoholism, his drinking, on, on the fact that he, saw, he thought it was a disease. Some blame in their environment. And they say, well, I grew up in a certain area, and so it was kind of rough in that area, and the people were tough and rough and did a lot of mean things and said a lot of mean things, and so therefore I'm like that. I can't help myself. And uh, others say, no, it's my spouse's fault that I'm the way I am. Uh, and others say, no, it's, I blame it on my boss. He got me so angry that I just lashed out against him. So it's his fault. And others say, that's no, our financial situation. If it wasn't for our, our weak financial situation, uh, we wouldn't have these arguments in our family or with my, the husband and the wife. And others say, well, I'm busy. I'm just too busy to take time to be holy, right? <laughs> so I'm so busy that I'm subject to temptation more so than the other person is. And then years ago, uh, an actor by the name of Flip Wilson said what? The devil made me do it. Uh, you guys all dated yourself back there. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. He said the devil made me do it. And in some sense, that is true. Uh, not, not the devil made you do it, but in some sense, the devil, Satan is a tempter. He tempted Eve, right? He tempted Christ. Christ was successful in that. And he has a, he has a role to play, but... Tonight, we're going to look at the truth about temptation as it's found in, in James chapter 1. Um, but something else that struck me was, was interesting was I thought of Aaron and all this. Aaron, back in Exodus 32. Before I look at James 1, turn to Exodus chapter 32. And I thought about that golden calf incident. And uh, look at Exodus 32, 21. Uh, this is, uh, Moses had gone to Mount Sinai to speak with the Lord. Moses had made a golden calf. People said, make a golden calf. And God, Moses came back down in verse 21. Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do that, to you that you have, that you have brought, them, uh, brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. That was true. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
I said to them, this is Aaron, whoever has any gold, let him tear let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> nope, I don't know what happened. It's not my fault. But it's interesting because look at verse 4 of chapter 32. When the people were saying, look, Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses. Make us a god. He instructs them what to do. Get, tear off your gold earrings. Give them to me. Verse 4, he took this from their hand, the gold. This is Aaron, okay? Aaron took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, wow. Aaron says in the later verses, I don't know what happened. This calf just came out. In the earlier verses, we see that Aaron is quite the idol maker, isn't he? It's almost as if he's experienced at it. He did it with such care and detail here. But who got the blame for all this? Well, God says in verse 7 of 32, chapter 32, the people have corrupt, corrupted themselves. They got the blame. And, and look what he says in verse, uh, verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. So God blames Aaron and the people. It's their fault. It's the people's fault for doing what they did. They, they fell prey to temptation and sin. They sinned against God. Well, tonight... James chapter 1, we're going to find out from James the truth about temptation. And it says in uh, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away enticed by his, and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first roots among his creatures. That word for trials in verse 2, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And also in verse 12, the word trials is used. Uh, that is the same word for, for temptation in verse 13. Let no man would say when he, when he is tempted. So the word, the, the same Greek word is used for both. And in verses 2 to 12, it, it means testings from without. And that's a positive use. In other words, it's used in the sense of God trying his people, putting them through a test to make them stronger in Christ and become spiritually mature. In verses 13 and through 16, it is used in a negative sense, and that is an inner solicitation to evil. It's used in the sense of temptation to sin. And how do you determine which way it's used? Well, by the context. And the context of the beginning of James is clearly talking about trials, whereas later on in verse 13 it's talking about temptation. Uh, so we use context for that. Um, what about the source of temptation in verses 13 and 14? It says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. First thing we see here is that God is not to blame for our temptation. God is not to blame. Let no one say, let no individual say this. Uh, no single individual should ever make this claim. But it may suggest that someone was making that claim, uh, saying, well, I'm, I'm tempted by sin. It's God's fault somehow. And maybe, and, and also this person who's saying this is in the temptation. He's being tempted, it says. And he's saying, well, this is God's fault. And this could be a person who's ready to fall over the edge and, and yield to sin totally. 
And he's saying in so many words, it's God's fault for this. Now, there's, you can directly charge God with and blame God with, your, with temptation instead of blaming yourself, or you can blame him indirectly. In a direct sense, someone could have a warped view of the sovereignty of God. They could say, well, the reason I have this temptation facing me is because God brought me into it because he's, he's sovereign after all, right? It's he's sovereign, so he's ordained all events in my life, and therefore he's ordained this, so therefore it's his fault. And that's what and one, you could say that. But that's a warped view of God's sovereignty, right? God is sovereign, yes, but man is also responsible, and that's the part we need to understand according to James chapter 1. Man is responsible. And I don't know if any of us could ever solve the riddle of, uh, if it is a riddle, of God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. It's not a riddle to God at all. It may be a riddle to us. But people could blame God for that. And then in an indirect sense, they could say, well, temptation is God's fault because he created me. He made me, right? I mean, I had no choice in the matter. I'm here. I didn't, have it. I didn't ask for this. Therefore, it's all his fault. So people could blame God, right? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. You have a classic case of blaming God for temptation and sin. <clears throat> Genesis 3.8. And you have the, uh, the fall of man listed here. And this is after they had partaken of the, food, of the fruit that God said don't partake of it. Genesis 3.8, they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, yeah, I did. I take full responsibility. Is that what he said? He said, oh, well, you see, let me explain this to you here. <laughs> it's going to take a little bit of an explanation. The woman whom you gave to me, you see, it's really ultimately your fault. The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. So Adam, in effect, is placing the blame on God. He's saying, well, Lord, you, you're the one that gave her to me. She's the one that gave me the fruit. I ate of it. So figure that one out. And then he goes on in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, let me explain this to you. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so the blame is being passed from somebody else to somebody else. And then what happens in the end here? God says, cursed is the ground to Adam and, and to Eve. You're going to bear and, and pain. You're going to bear children. And so he says, no, it's your fault. It's your fault. I lay the blame at your feet. You're, you're wrong. Do, we ever blame, do you ever blame God for temptation? Have you ever done that? I think probably all of us have. Well, Lord, the reason I'm in this situation is because, you know, I, I, you had something to do with it, I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And, and you know, this is maybe I'm, I'm weak, and you made me like this, and, and I, why don't you do something about it? And we want to blame God. We may not voice it out loud, but we blame God. I like Proverbs 19.3. A man's, listen to this, I've, and you've seen this in action if you, if you watch people carefully. A man's own folly ruins his life 
yet his heart rages against who? Against the Lord, right? In other words, we get ourselves in a mess. We do something that gets ourselves in a total mess. And who do we blame? We blame God. I've seen people do that. They are in a mess in their life. They brought it all on themselves, and they're mad at God. It's his fault somehow. But no, the temptation, the, the fault lies with us. Have you ever blamed God uh, silently in your mind even for the things that come to pass in, in the way of temptation? Philo, guy way back in the day, said this, When the mind has sinned and removed itself far from virtue, it lays the blame on divine causes, attributing to God its own change. So God receives the blame often for things that, and he had nothing to do with it at all, but we blame him for it. And that's the truth about temptation. But it goes on to say in James chapter 1, it goes on to say in verse 13, uh, God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot be tempted by evil. He's unlike us. He's perfect. He's pure. He's holy. He's other than us completely. He doesn't have that sin nature. He's not susceptible to evil. Evil has no appeal to him. Evil is repugnant to God. Evil is despised and hated by God. He hates evil. Can't stand it. He's a pure eyes and to behold evil, it says in the prophets. And so it says he can't be tempted by evil. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It's not too far away. Hebrews 4.15. Someone says, what about Christ? Wasn't he tempted? Verse four, uh, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as, yet, as we are, yet without sin. It says he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Two things are true. He was tempted and he didn't sin. And so the God-man, yes, the God-man was fully God and fully man was tempted, and yet he did not sin. Um, and people go to all kinds of lengths to try to explain that. Hey, that's what it says. I accept what the Scripture says on, on face value, and that's all it says. The God-man was tempted, and he, and he did not sin. And he himself does not tempt anyone, it says in verse 13 as well, James chapter 1. And God's character cannot allow it. He's holy. He's, he's pure. That's a no-brainer, right? I mean, God, God doesn't tempt anybody. That, that's something that we don't even need to spend much time on at all. God doesn't tempt men at all. And so God is not to blame for sin. We may blame him in our heart. We may say, Lord, if I, you know, I look back on my life and uh, this happened and that happened and really, you know, I can blame. But we shouldn't blame God at all. It's not his fault. God's not to blame for temptation. Verse 14, we are to blame for temptation. We're to blame. It says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one, none is, is exempted. Uh, everyone is subject to temptation. It's a universal experience, and don't think you're beyond it because no one is. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a deacon or church member in the pew or what you are. No one, no believer is beyond temptation. I'm amazed at some of the people that seem to give me the impression that they're beyond temptation. But no one is beyond temptation. Why would we think that? The Scriptures teaches us otherwise. Go with what the Scripture says. And everyone is repeatedly tempted because this is in the present tense. Each one is tempted, repeatedly so. Temptation is always nipping at our heels. It's always there. It's always there. It could be television. It could be a person. It could be uh, something at your work. It could be at school, in the neighborhood. It goes on and on and on. You know. Only you know. Temptation is always there. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He says in verse 14, 
Each one is tempted when he is carried away. There's two terms here that are very interesting, carried away and uh, enticed uh, by his own lust. And someone said this, the true source of man's temptation is that the trouble lies in the combustible material that each person carries within himself. Temptation has its source not in the outward lure, but in the inner lust. Temptation is not in the object that we see. It's in, it's in our inner lust. In Mark 7, 21, let me read this to you. Mark 7, 21, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, <clears throat> proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within, and they defile the man. So all these, Jesus says, the problem is your heart. You have lust in your heart. It comes from your heart. It comes from within your own being. And you have these two terms here in verse 14 of James chapter 1 that are a hunting and a fishing term. The first one says, uh, each one is tempted when he is carried away. The word means to be dragged away. It describes wild game being lured into traps. And temptation is something that promises us something that looks really good on the outside. Like Satan said to Eve, this fruit looks good, right? Eat it. And it promises to be something good and nice. And yet, and the end result is what? It's destruction, right? It's destruction. And then another, another uh, illustration in verse 14, it says, each one is carried away and enticed. That's a, fish, a fishing il- illustration. <clears throat> Some years ago... <clears throat> For a brief period of time, I was really, really into bass fishing. We had some friends that we were all into. We studied bass fishing. We went bass fishing. We bought the equipment, and we we knew that they would the bass would lurk around the edges of the weeds or near the shore even, and, and we'd cast where we thought they were. And what we would do is most for the most part, we'd use we'd use a plastic worm, and we'd put the plastic worm in the water, as you all know. And the fish, the bass loved that, and they'd go for it, and they'd, and they'd get it. But they, what they didn't know was this. There was a hook in the plastic worm that would, that would catch them and get them. And that's what temptation is like. We see the outward attraction, but we don't see the hook. As Thomas Hooker, the Puritan, said, Satan shows the bait, but he hides the hook. And that's exactly what happens. And, and it's like Moses in Hebrews 11 where it says Moses decided to suffer with the people of God, affliction, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season, right? Because it looks good on the outside, but, and it promises something, but in, in the end is destruction. And each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. <clears throat> and it says here, by the way, lust is that which is a strong desire toward what, toward what is forbidden, a strong desire towards what is forbidden. And the process of temptation is described in verse 14 and 15. It says, verse 15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Lust has conceived. It's like, it's like a baby, this illustration here, growing up to manhood, complete manhood. And it says lust has conceived. In other words, your will is bending toward the evil temptation and seizing upon it. It's conceived. And then it says it gives birth to sin. That's actual sin. It's committed. You're knowingly disobedient to God's will. It's the next step. And then it says when sin is accomplished, in other words, when sin is brought to completion, when sin is full grown like a man, a baby who's grown up to manhood, then then in the end is death. So sin kind of has a life of its own. 
It's kind of got a life of its own. It is born, it develops, it reaches to full maturity, but in the end it brings forth death, ultimately spiritual death and bad consequences to go along with it. And so James shows three generations of sin here. The grandmother is lust, the mother is sin, and the daughter is death. All bad. It's all a downward progression. All of it's bad. None of it's good. No matter how good it looks, it's all bad. No matter how good it looks to the guys in the Bible that committed different sins, it's always a bad thing and always ended up bad every time. Every time. And so we're given a warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't, want, don't be caused to wonder. Stop being deceived. Our own nature is a source of temptation. Our own nature is. And, and uh, <clears throat> you've got to be guard, on guard against your temptation, on guard against it, because it'll come and get you when you least expect it. It'll get you. And, you know, you've got to be careful. If you know temptation is somewhere or you're vulnerable to temptation in a certain area, you've got to go the extra mile to guard against that, whether it's some location, some place you might go to. If it causes you temptation, don't go to that place. If it's something you watch on television that's causing temptation, don't watch that program. If it's some people you hang around that cause temptation for you, don't go to those, with those people. If it's some event you go to that, cause, that you know you're going to be subject to temptation, don't go to that event. Activities you're involved in that you know are going to bring about temptation, stay away from those activities. You know there's going to be temptation, stay away from it. Don't be deceived, James says. Don't be deceived. And so temptation, always a bad thing. However, on the other side of this is the truth about God. The truth about God, verse 17. Every good thing given, it says here, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is the source of all good things, of all good gifts. Now, before, in verse 13, it said uh, someone was blaming God for temptation, right? But just the opposite is true. God's not like that. He doesn't tempt people to sin. God, rather, is, is good, and God is giving, and God is gracious, and God is loving, and God is kind. That's the true nature of God. Don't be deceived about that either, about the truth about God. He's a good God. And two aspects, it talks about his gifts here and his giving. Two aspects of his giving are mentioned. First of all, the act of giving, and secondly, the gift itself. The act of giving and the gift itself. It says every good thing given, every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above. The act of giving is, is something that God does. As we've said before, as we said last week or a couple weeks ago, God is a giving God, right? He's gracious. He's not stingy. Uh, he gives. Like it says in verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is a generous, giving, loving God. And what he gives us is useful for his people. What he gives is beneficial for his people. Uh, that's, what, that's what he does. And the land, when Israel went through the wilderness, they knew on the other end God was going to give them the land of Canaan as a gift, and he did. It indicates, it, this indicates the nature of God, that he's lavish in his, generos, in his generosity. Back when we were at New Tampa Baptist Church, <clears throat> when uh, Mike Sprott first came here, we weren't in this church, we were in another church, and uh, we called him to be our pastor. And uh, he used to say all the time, he still says this, but he said it all the time then, he said, God is good. He said it so many times. <laughs> 
and he said God is good all the time, that they bought him a shirt that said God is good. And he, and he wore that shirt around, red shirt with white letters on it. I remember that. But that's true. Mike's theology is right on target. God is good. And God is, is, is just, just the opposite of what the people in verse 13 want, want you to think. God is not uh, here, for, here to hurt us at all or harm us. He's here for our good. So every good thing given is from God. And then the gift itself, every perfect gift it says, every gift that's complete, every gift God gives lacks nothing at all. It's, it's complete in itself, and it's good, and it's wholesome, and it's helpful, and it's healthy. Have you ever thought to yourself, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, for 40 years, manna rained down from heaven? And I've thought about that manna, and I've thought to myself, because they complained about it all the time. They said, no, we wish we had meat to eat and this and that. And I thought to myself, that manna, what was it made of? What was in that manna? And, and the thought has occurred to me, and I, this may be implied in the, in the Old Testament, certainly not taught explicitly and maybe i'm reaching here but i think that manna knowing god and because it was for 40 years had to sustain the people had to be the perfect balance of nutrients in it to keep them going day after day i, I would think it have to, it would have to be that way or they wouldn't have been able to survive this manna that came down from heaven there's a lot of foods not a lot of foods some foods today people call superfoods they're foods that are really good for you. I'm talking about vegetables and stuff like that that are really good, and, and they're pointed out to us. This was the superfood right here. It had to be. And because, Why? Because well, how do I know this? Because God is this way. He gives only gifts that are good and perfect and just right. And so I believe when he gave that man to the people, it was just what they needed to sustain them for 40 years in the wilderness. He's a, he, he gives perfect gifts. And this idea, this word perfect, is, indicates the value of the gifts. His gifts are valuable, they're eternal, they're meaningful, they're purposeful, they're helpful. Our gifts, not so much, but God gifts, yeah, very much so. i never forget where years ago I was teaching a Sunday school class in another church. <clears throat> I think it was a college class. And the people in there, uh, they said, they got together, I didn't know this, and they said, we're going to get Mark a, a, a present for his birthday. And uh, they decided to get me a Bible. The thought was, let's get Mark a really nice, nice Bible. But then someone came down in this class from another state who was a very controlling person and took over the whole operation of the gift they were going to get me and pretty much banished everybody else and said, I'll take care of this. Don't worry about it. So the Sunday came, and after class, they said, we have something for you, Brother Mark, for being our Sunday school teacher. We have a gift for you. Here it is. And I unwrapped it. And it was a Bible about this size. And it had a metal plate on the front of it with my name on it. A metal plate. You know how most Bibles have an engraving on the Bible itself? Well, this had a metal plate with my name engraved on it. And I thought, well, you know, I said, thank you. I appreciate the gift. Thank you very much. But I thought to myself, that's strange that there's a metal plate on this. Could it be that <laughs> there's another name under that, that metal plate that's not mine? <laughs> And uh, there was a guy in the class that was very upset about this whole thing because he wanted to be involved in getting me a gift, and this, this person had come in and controlled everything and took over. And, and uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, huh? No, no, there's another good word that I like. I can't think of it right now. Ah! He came in, and she came in and did that. And, uh, he, and so he got really upset front of the class basically in front of most of the people there and he said 
I wonder what's behind this nameplate. And he got it in front of everybody and got the nameplate and started peeling it off. I thought, no, don't do that. This person's going to be really offended. Peeled it off, and sure enough, there was another name there. <laughs> Come to find out this person had got a deal on the Bible, got it for $5 somewhere. And this person, other person was very mad because they wanted to get me a really nice Bible. And this other person got it for $5 because of a good deal. You know? And they thought, well, just put the nameplate on top of it. It'll put his name. He won't ever know, right? And I found out. But, you know, that's how, and by the way, I named the Bible, Ryan, the uh, nameplate study Bible after that. <laughs> but that's, don't we do that, though, or don't we, this is, this is how our gifts are oftentimes. They're not necessarily, you know, on the up and up all the time. Like, you might get the token gift for Christmas because you're supposed to get a gift, right? Oh, Mark, uh, and here's a gift for you as well. It's uh, a puzzle you can put together. Like, I'm going to put together a puzzle ever in my life? So, you know, but, but God's gifts are not like that. They're not like that. What he gives is, is purposeful. I had another guy one time years ago in a, this is a long story, up north never wore a suit back in those days and still don't like suits. And the, the, the guy was meant well. He meant well. He was a good man, good heart. Came to my, I was living in a dorm up there. It was in northern Indiana. He came to my dorm. He said, Mark, I've got, the Lord has laid something on my heart. He had a suit with him. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? He wants me to give you this suit, he said. The Lord wants, the Lord told me to give you this suit. Really? That's nice of you to do that. I appreciate that. So I tried it on. It was way too big for me. It didn't fit at all. And I thought to myself, I wonder if the Lord knows what size I wear. <laughs> but the point is, God, God's gifts are not like ours. We don't. We're. You know, we have ulterior motives often, but not God. He's. His gifts are good. They're perfect. They're right. They're. They're that which would suit us and help us. Does God give any bad gifts ever? No, never. Right. Never get anything that's bad. Even the trials He sends at the beginning of the chapter are, are for our good. Right. They're for our, our benefit. And and God gives gifts to all. Some gifts are. You know, we call it common grace. Right. Matthew five forty five. He causes His rain fall on the just and the unjust. He causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Acts 16, the same type thing, it says. So God has common grace uh, exhibited toward all of us. But the emphasis here in James chapter 1 is on the spiritual. And it says in verse 17 that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, right? It's from heaven as opposed to earth. It's coming down. ASV says it's coming, continually coming down. Continually coming down his gifts. Each gift Someone said, originating in heaven and descending in a continual stream. And it's from the Father of lights. The Father of lights is the Father of the celestial bodies, the sun, the, the moon, the stars. God created all that, Genesis, you know. And the God who created this, the heavenly lights is the same one who gives us his good gifts because he's a giving and a loving God. And, he, and it says here in verse 17, with whom there is no variation, no variation or shifting shadow. <clears throat> no variation from an established course or pattern. God never changes, right? God's immutable, no change. Shifting shadow, the shadows cast by the sun at noon are minimal, but just before sunset, they stretch out for a longer distance. But God is not like that. He doesn't change like the shadows do. He's always the same. He never changes. God's a good God. Uh, as a, In contrast to those who would say maybe the Lord is the one to blame for my temptation. He doesn't do that at all. 
And the greatest gift he can give, and we'll look at this another time, is verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God gives us the new birth. That's the greatest gift of all that he gives us, the new birth in Christ. Well, the truth about temptation is this. We should not blame God for our sin, right? We shouldn't blame God for our sin when we're tempted. He's not at fault. God hates sin. He doesn't lure anybody into sin. He doesn't try to entrap his people into sin. He's not responsible for temptation at all. The truth is about temptation that we're at fault, right? We're at fault when we succumb to it. We need to take personal responsibility for our own sin, our own temptation that faces. We need to take personal responsibility, something this country is not in the habit nowadays of doing, taking personal responsibility. All of us got to face up to our own temptation and sin and say, look, we got to deal with it. It's our fault. We're at fault. And when, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. When sin's full grown, uh, then it brings forth death. And we are warned in verse 16, don't be deceived about the process of temptation or how it works. It's, don't look for an outside. Don't blame it on an outside source. It's our fault. Contrasting that with God who never intends his people harm, but he's good and giving and unchanging, and he only wants blessing for his people, right? Only wants blessing for his people. So tonight I hope we can see the truth about these matters and not be deceived. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word tonight and uh, what it teaches us. We just pray we would uh, go away from here tonight knowing that we're responsible for you to live, before you to live a holy life. We know we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not, we're not deceived in, in thinking that we can do it on our own, Lord. And we pray we depend upon you and that you would help us each day to walk with you and avoid temptation and run to you and, and serve you and live for you all the days of our life, knowing you're a good God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.